This is James Cooper with K-State Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. When it gets real hot outside, the timing of herbicides becomes more important and requires special care. I've noticed a few fields of corn around the district with signs of nitrogen or herbicide burn from top dress applications. Generally, these are pretty obvious because the symptom of burnt leaves concentrate on row ends and overlaps. For the most part, these fields have a little leaf loss, but will be fine. Save for some possible fungicide applications, corn spraying is largely over with, but post-emergent herbicide on soybeans has just begun. Most of our herbicides, including glyphosate, are synthetic herbicides that interrupt a certain biological process in the weed to kill it. This means the weed has to be actively growing for the herbicide to provide good control. When temperatures get above 85 degrees, most plants' metabolic processes are slowed. Applying herbicides in the morning allow the weeds time to recover from the heat stress overnight and should be actively growing. Another reason is during the heat of the day and dry weather, leaves will droop from wilting, so spray from above won't receive as much herbicide due to the angle of the leaves. Spraying in the morning will help this aspect as well. When it gets hot out, weeds become more resistant to herbicides for other reasons. Their leaves become more waxy, a natural response to the preserved moisture, but it makes it more important to use the full rate of surfactant. Of course, since we are talking about soybeans, we need to mention the volatility issues with dicamba and to a lesser degree 2,4-D. Volatility of these herbicides increases when temperatures are above 60 degrees and continue to even increase above 90 degrees. Once volatilized, these herbicides become vapors and can move long distances. Often, the biggest issues is during temperature inversions. Of course, there are a lot of regulations when it comes to spraying soybeans at Canva with temperatures, inversions, wind speed, sprayer tips, and the time of day, all of which are meant to reduce volatilization and overdrift. Now, there are some herbicides that are actually become more effective in hot and humid conditions, such as contact herbicides of Cobra, Liberty, Reflex, and a few others. The problem is, is that they become too effective and they will end up causing a good deal of harm to the soybean crop as well. A little stress of soybeans has been shown to increase yields, but there is a proper balance of enough herbicide to affect to kill the weeds and to stress the soybeans, but not so much to set the soybeans back. Most of the time, these herbicides should not be used when it gets above 90 degrees outside. Reducing herbicide rates and applying later in the day towards evening can help protect the soybean leaves. In the end, if it's too hot to be outside, then it's probably too hot to spray herbicides. If there's any questions, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. One great thrill this time of year is seeing lush grass. With last year's drought, those previously lush pastures are not quite as inspiring. Summer annual forages are warm season grasses that tolerate hot, dry weather and are adapted to our area. While we do have to wait for 70 degree soil temperatures, these species grow quickly enough to be grazable in four to six weeks. As the term annual implies, the soil must be prepped, seed planted, and fertilized each year. These grass species include, but are not limited to, forage sorghums, sedan grass, sorghum-sedan hybrids, millets, and teff. 
While there can be concern with nitrate accumulation or prussic acid production, the high nutrient quality and forage availability can outweigh the risks. Each of these forage species can be valuable in an overall forage system. Selecting the appropriate species should be based on the needs of the individual livestock program. Each forage has varying characteristics that influence its use. Forage sorghums can grow 8 to 13 feet tall and produce substantial amount of dry matter. Forage sorghums grow best in fertile, well-drained soils that have good water holding capacity. They are best used in single hay cuttings when plants are in bloom or early doe stage. Sorghums have large stems. Crushing them with a conditioner will make them dry faster. Sedan grass is a fast-growing, warm-season annual that can produce good forage though usually not as much as the sorghum sedan hybrids. True sedan grass has fine stems and regrows rapidly after being grazed. Sedan grass needs fertile soil that drains well. Sorghum sedan hybrids grow four to seven feet tall, have smaller stems and dry faster than forage sorghums. Sorghum sedan hybrids can yield more than any other summer annuals. These hybrids can be used for grazing or silage, but they're difficult to dry for hay. Millet is adapted to sandy acidic soils, known for its rapid growth and short growing season. The first harvest can be reaped in four to six weeks. A second harvest can be realized by leaving four to six inches of plant stubble and it will regrow. Grazing or mowing too short will terminate the stand prematurely. Millets are well suited to less fertile soils and poor growing conditions, such as intense heat or low rainfall. Millets are ideal for emergency, late planted, and double cropping situations. Teff is a self-pollinated, warm season annual grass, which can be harvested multiple times during the growing season as dry hay, silage, or pasture. As a fast growing crop, teff combines excellent forage quality with high yield during a relatively short growing season. Teff can provide one and a half to two and a half tons of forage material 45 to 55 days after planting. To learn more about establishing annual forages, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Bats are unique and interesting animals, with their nocturnal nature making them one of the more mysterious animals in Kansas. However, during this time of year, bats become more active, which means that homeowners and pet owners should take notice if bats are seen in their area. According to the Center of Disease Control, bats are the leading transmitter of rabies. Kansas State University veterinarian Susan Nelson states that because bats are more active this time of year, there is an increased chance of exposure to them. While bats are an important part of the ecosystem and most bats are harmless, it is important to remember that in certain situations, bats can be a threat to the health of both people and animals and any contact people or animals have with bats needs to be taken seriously. If you find a bat in your home 
or on your property, Nelson recommends having the bat tested for rabies as a precaution in the following situations. When you are scratched or bitten by a bat, when you handle a bat with your bare hands, if you were to wake up and find a bat in your room, when unattended young children are found in the same room as a bat, when mentally disabled or intoxicated people are found in a room with a bat. If you find a bat in your residence, it is recommended that you carefully catch the bat without touching it and take it to your local veterinarian for rabies testing submission. Possible exposure to rabies is an urgent event but not an emergency in most situations. This means that one can typically wait to receive post-exposure treatment until after the testing results are in. When it comes to pets, the best way to protect pets from bat exposure is to keep their rabies vaccinations current, Nelson said. Adding that it is also important for indoor-only pets as bats are often found in houses. If there's a possibility a pet was exposed to a bat, it should be taken to a veterinarian within 96 hours to get a rabies booster if the bat was unavailable for testing, Nelson recommends. If the bat is available for testing, there's time to wait and see if a rabies booster is needed. It is important to respect bats and the role they play in the environment, but also take possible exposure to bats seriously. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Damon Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Many homeowners have started noticing strange paper bags hanging from evergreens in their landscapes. These bags are the nests of bagworms. Bagworms are the larval stage of moths that emerge from their bags in late May and early June to feed on the foliage of both deciduous and evergreen trees. Timing of their emergence depends on the weather of the spring. Cooler and wetter weather, as seen this year, will delay the emergence of bagworms. Damage ends up being much more severe on evergreen trees and shrubs due to the lack of foliage regrowth during the year. Bagworms are most common on cedars, junipers, and arborvitae, but can also be found on shade trees like sycamores, elms, and hackberries. Occasionally, they can also nest on buildings. Bagworms form their bags using a combination of plant debris and silk that the worms spin. During the six weeks or so that they feed, they will begin to grow their bags when the worms are an eighth of an inch to a quarter inch long. Bags have slightly different structures depending on whether a male larva or female larva is nesting inside. Bags that have male larvae are typically near the bottom of the tree and will be abandoned in the fall after the males become moths. Bags with females, where the eggs overwinter, are usually found towards the tops of trees. One female bag can produce 500 to 1,000 eggs that will all hatch the following spring. If trying to control bagworms, prioritize the bags near the top of the plant to better keep populations in check. Once the worms begin to grow their bags, insecticides are largely ineffective, which means that trees must be sprayed before visual evidence of bagworms' presence appears. In Kansas, these sprays would need to be applied in early June, 
and then again in mid to late June. Presence of bagworms from previous years is the best indicator for determining if your trees need spraying. There are 522 different insecticides labeled for bagworm control in Kansas, so choosing an insecticide to apply will mostly depend on local availability. Hand removal of bagworm bags, though tedious, is the most consistent way to prevent future damage to smaller trees and shrubs. Throw any removed bags into soapy water. Leaving bags on the ground still allows for eggs to grow and hatch. If you have a severe bagworm problem and they are already in their bags and feeding, spinosad sprays will prove the most effective control option. Unlike most insecticides, spinosad does not need to touch the insect it's trying to kill. Instead, spinosad leaves a residue in the canopy that the bagworms will ingest when they go to feed and kill them once ingested. The best part of using spinosad products is that the chemical has very low toxicity for humans compared to most other insecticides. However, it is still important to read the label in its entirety before using any insecticide to know the safest manner to apply it. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.